I think we do ourselves a really big disservice on almost any topic by saying this or this. And we put those two things as diametrically opposed. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? I am so glad that you are here to join me for this episode. I have an awesome episode in store for all of you. I had the chance to talk to Logan Dubay. I met Logan because they were the instructor for a course that I took a couple of weeks ago, the Pain-Free Performance Specialist Certification, and I was very impressed by Logan. It became very clear to me from the start that Logan is very passionate about fitness and about pain-free fitness, and also that Logan has such an extensive knowledge of the technical side of training. Logan is the Director of Fitness Education for Fitness World Canada and the Director of the British Columbia Personal Training Institute. They've been a coach, trainer, instructor, and fitness leader for 23 years, which If you saw them in person, you would never believe because they look much younger than they actually are. Logan's been a fitness educator for the last four years. They are a master instructor for the Pain-Free Performance Specialist Certification, an instructor for TRX as well as TriggerPoint and Hyperice. Logan used to be a varsity and then professional soccer player. They were a goalkeeper. And in this episode, they share with us about how their experience in soccer and with a pretty serious professional career still affects them to this day. I was so appreciative of Logan coming on the podcast and being so open with their journey and experience in realizing that they are non-binary. And we had a really interesting discussion about Logan's take on gender and some of the problems with how we view gender in our society. I have a lot of respect for Logan's technical expertise, as well as insights into training and the why behind their training and how that's always evolving. I don't want to give away too much. It's much better to hear all of this stuff from Logan. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Logan Dubay. Hi, Logan. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. I am super excited to have you on the show today and get the chance to speak with you. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. This is great. The podcast is called How Do You Feel? And I always start off with a how do you feel question. So I would like to know, how you feel about continuing education for trainers? It's a great question. If I had to pick one word answer, I would say crucial. I feel like it's really crucial. Let me break that down a little bit. I got certified in 2006 after having kind of done training and coaching without a certification for a while. I mean, I like school. I'm a little bit of a geek that way. But I I got into an industry where I was like, oh, I, I know everything. I was an athlete. Let me just get the stamp of approval and and then go to work. 
Um, and that was great. I, I worked with clients for quite a while. And then as more courses became available and I took them, um, I started realizing it's sort of that you don't know what you don't know until you don't. Right. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I kind of got into this, like take something every month kind of rampage. And I probably did that for a couple of years. And what I noticed is I would be looking forward to the course coming up on the weekend. And then I'd come back from the course all fired up and inspired. And I think one of my coworkers asked me one day, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you just stay on? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, there's so much to learn. There's so much to practice and there's so much more. I want. And then I was like, oh, I'm like the only person on my team that goes to education. That's probably like related. So I think a big part of what education is for me is not just learn science, not don't just learn psychology and coaching tips and program design and all that kind of stuff. But like a big part of our job as, as trainers is to be the energy, mm. right? Like our clients come to us and they need to get focused and they need a supporter and they need a motivator and they need someone that's going to help them change their state. You can't pour from an empty cup. So if you're not fired up about the next hour with this person, uh, they're not going to bring enough for, for both of you. They don't even have enough for themselves. So I sort of go, yeah, science is awesome. And building your skill set is awesome, but like, who's going to charge you up? And, and if you can just start by being motivated and, and enthusiastic every day you get up to go to work, you're going to help people. I think that's kind of like the base level. It's crucial because no one else is going to charge your batteries. You're there to serve them. Yeah, that's so true. And it's interesting. You see a lot of trainers burning themselves out. I 100% did it when I first became a trainer. I had no concept of the fact that part of my job was showing up to give others energy. And that in turn, that would mean that I had to recharge. So it's an, it's an interesting point that you make because I see a lot of young trainers going down that road of just, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more. And then they completely burn themselves out. And at that point, it doesn't matter what you know, if you're not bringing that energy and able to apply it with your clients. Because we also know that knowledge on its own isn't powerful. It's the application of knowledge that makes it powerful. So how do we take what we learn and how do we show up and implement it in a way that's effective with our clients in the gym? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, like the, the, what we're actually learning, the, the science, the, the skill set, the communication, the cueing, the, all of that stuff. I think the other thing about it is the more the more you have available to help the person in front of you, the easier it is to help them. And, and mm -hmm. when we go back to sort of looking at, at sort of newer trainers, they've got a lot of passion, they've got their own experience, but they don't have a bunch of tools in the toolkit, so to speak. And it can be really stressful to want to help somebody, but not know how, especially around the fact that we're not dealing with robots where you're like input data and output result, you're dealing with you know messy emotional human beings. So I think it can be really stressful to not have the, the tools that are going to allow you to help people. So it's kind of like a combination of both. The more you know, the actually, actually the easier it is, the less energy it takes. Um, and then you keep showing up in, in a room with a lot of really fired up, passionate, excited people. And it's impossible to not have that rub off on you a little bit. So, you know, there's, there's definitely multiple benefits, but I think a big part of it is like, if you run out of energy and quit, nobody's going to bring you back. So you have to find a way to stay in it. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about your soccer career. The main thing I want to know is, is there any ways that your past soccer career still affects you on a daily basis 
now? Like, what do you notice that lingers from that experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there's two things. Number one, I really believe in the power of a good team. As much as being a goalie is kind of a slightly isolated position, like you train differently and you have a different responsibility on the field. Uh, like the better you work with your team, the better you coordinate things, uh, you know, from the back, the, the better the, the game goes. And then when you translate that into sort of any work environment, you know, if you've got people around you that everyone's sort of hustling and moving towards the same vision, whether it's winning a game or serving a community or, you know, like whatever that is, again, like around building up the amount of energy that you have and, and being excited to show up every day. I'm a huge believer in teams. So I've definitely done some things in the industry on my own and I, they were successful, I guess, depending on how you measure success. Like I made money. So if, if that's your measure of success, cool. But I was ultimately unfulfilled anytime I was doing something on my own. And so, uh, so a big thing that I think I, I sort of carry forward from soccer is that I just function better on a team and the better the team, the better I function. So if I surround myself with really awesome people, um, I feel good. I perform better, but I, I sort of noticed something. I was kind of chatting with a couple of the other instructors and I said, you know what? I, th I think I've noticed that when I show up to, to teach like a weekend certification, I kind of do like my 48 hours ahead of time, like zoom focus game time, like prep thing. I did that for so long that when there was like sort of high performance on the line, say on Saturday, like on Thursday, it was like oatmeal for breakfast, get to class on time get my stretching it. Like I just, I kind of dialed in on Thursdays and I, I kind of mm -hmm. caught myself doing it uh, as I started getting back into live education when things opened up to the point where the, the group of ladies that I train on Thursday morning, they're like, why are Thursdays always harder than Tuesday? Like, <laughs> oh, Cause I'm like getting into game mode. So I can't yeah. really help, but that intensity kind of like spreads out into everything else I'm doing. So I think that was a really valuable lesson as an athlete. I don't think enough people know how to mentally prepare to perform at their best. Yeah. Um, and I did it for so long that it's sort of an ingrained habit that I'm not even necessarily doing on purpose, but it, it shows up and I think it serves me really well. So that, I think that was a powerful benefit too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. People think of um, athletics as such a physical activity. And of course it is. And you, you train to be physically fit and you have to have the skills, but the mental piece is so much bigger. Like I swear the, my husband plays soccer as well. Mm -hmm. The more I see him progress in his career, the more I realize how much it's about the mental preparation and the mental training that he does. And it's very cool that you've noticed that it just, it carries over into other things that you do because we can all benefit from mental preparation with everything. I mean, when I sit down to do a podcast, I can benefit from mental preparation. When I go to do my workout, I can benefit from mental preparation. So I think that's a, that's a pretty cool effect that you've noticed. How is your training different right now than it was from say like five years ago? I kind of have two thoughts. If we go like 15 years ago, I was sort of just coming out of a, pro athlete career. And that in my mind was like workouts were supposed to be two hours long and they were supposed to be really aggressive and competitive. And I think th that I had a hard time letting that go, even when mm -hmm. I didn't need to train at that level anymore. And then I got into a bunch of like group fitness and yoga and all kinds of cool stuff. And then I kind of 
I think I had a period of time where I was like, I'm, I'm wasting my time. This is not effective. This is not good enough. And I got really into building a business. And if I wasn't getting a two hour aggressive workout in, then what was the point? And so I, I don't know that sort of a five-year timeline is, is exactly accurate, but I definitely had to get over this really high unnecessary standard of <laughs> sort of engaging in anything physical. So, so I would say in, in the last maybe five to eight years, I've calmed down a little bit and any movement is good movement. Um, I now prioritize being pain-free and the stuff that I do now, I want to be able to do it when I'm 80, 90 years old. So I, I, I stopped ego lifting. I stopped competing with other people. I, I think I just sort of got a little bit more intuitive, got a little bit more, um, you know, forgiving a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, 45 minutes at, you know, 70% of my heart rate max is still incredibly valuable. And I think I'm still, I think I'm, I think I'm there, but I think it's still, I wouldn't call that the status quo yet. Like that's kind of still what I'm working on is like, if I miss a workout every once in a while, I don't have to like start the phase all over again. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have a little bit of that kind of like teetotaler mentality still. And it's, it's definitely been a, it been a journey unwinding from that. And I, I would say kind of the, maybe the one thing that, that helped me do that is when I was teaching group classes, you know, if you're at the front on a spin bike, you have to do everything you're asking people to do but there's a community feel, there's a fun, you, you know, when you teach in an inclusive way, it's way more exciting than mm. if you're like, you all suck. I'm the fittest in the room. You can't be like me. So I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just been moving away from the idea that I have to be the hardest worker in the room and that my competitor is working harder than me right now. And that means they're, I, I just had to learn how to let all that go. It served a purpose, but like, you know, if I, if I want to train this way, for a very long time, it's got to be a way more sustainable practice than okay, but the championships in two months. So we've got to be peaking. You know what I mean? Like I just had to let all that go. Yeah, for sure. I get it. Stripping down your ego in relation to the gym is no joke. It is quite a process and it's not black and white. Like, I think I, I relate to you in that, like, I've come a really long way and also sometimes I still have to check myself and say, actually, I don't have to PR today. Actually, it's okay if I do one less pull up on my set based on how I'm feeling. And just like keep those mental checks in place because we have belief systems around what we decide to place value on. You were deciding to place value on like your workout had to be two hours. I decide to place value on, did I do sets of six pull-ups or five like it's all it's all so arbitrary and so to just like continue to check yourself it's like fully a process it doesn't just happen yeah and you know at the same time i i want to say that there is value to that one percent better every day kind of mentality um there's a lot of people that have shown long-term success and and the ability to reach really high heights by by sort of following that type of mentality so there's something about it that i that I do really resonate with, but I think it comes down to 1% better doesn't necessarily mean physical performance every time. Right. It doesn't mean faster every time. There's lots of things to get 1% better at. And sometimes it's 1% better at experiencing more joy, 1% mm. better at being a better teammate, 1% better at getting a friend involved in fitness because they're having a hard time of a go, you know, hard time doing it on their own. So while my workout today might not have been my best, you know, Apple watch metric performance. Like, you know, I got a lot of joy out of bringing someone in and helping them get maybe more consistent with their habits. So it's, it's just getting a little bit more like whole 
holistic whole life yeah. um, about <laughs> it. And that's not something that that sort of pure athlete mentality has room for. I, I think about the fact that as an athlete, I was super selfishly driven and that's fine that that was what was required at that time. Um, but that's not what I want to do anymore. And that's actually not even the best way forward. So it was, it was sort of like being able to recognize improvements in lots and lots of different ways. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the 1% better every day, but recognizing all of the ways that you can get 1% better every day. And again, it's, it's the beliefs that we, we place value on only certain metrics and certain things based on what we valued in the past. And can you learn to say, hey, actually I get 1% better at this other thing. Just like you're saying, like, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm really, I'm really glad that you, that you brought that up. How would you describe your personal approach to health and fitness right now? What is your kind of overall philosophy? When I think about my athletic career, when I think about myself in fitness, when I think about, not that it's about what other people think, but what other people tell you they think about you is actually interestingly informative, right? Hmm. Um, so I, I get a lot of, I actually get it through my, my fiance. She, she will report back to me that people think I'm like a total beast. I'm such a badass. I work out all the time. I probably eat like broccoli and, and chicken all the time. And I, f- I find it really interesting because that's so not the truth. Like mm. I'm a, I, f- I figure I'm pretty average right now. And yeah, I've got a bunch of experience and I know some things and, and this is the career that I'm in, but like, by no means do I feel like my most disciplined self at this time, by no means do I feel like I'm chasing really impressive things so it's interesting. I think how I view it for myself is that I I sort of have to figure out how to function without a really defined goal. I teach goal setting. I use it when I'm helping somebody get started, but if I'm being really honest, I don't have a huge goal. And I I also don't want to feel bad about that. So I look at it as what's important to me in my life in general. I love the industry. I'm really passionate about it getting better and serving people better. And, you know, all the, all the stuff that, you know, that we sort of complain about, like, okay, what are the solutions to that? I'm, I'm passionate about that. So my, my job Mm -hmm. is also kind of this thing that I love to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it can be hard to separate those two things. (laughs) So I I think it kind of comes down to, I want to feel good. I want to be pain-free. I want to be able to do a lot of cool stuff I don't necessarily want to be a master of anything in particular. I like kind of the jack of all trades mentality. I want to follow what I'm curious about, you know, as much as a a CSCS program is great. Sometimes I just want to go swinging Dean clubs around. So I stand for what I, I do and I believe in what I do and I think it matters and I think we should be getting better, but also like, like I'm trying to be a little bit maybe more easy and intuitive about it and not be so hard on myself because I definitely went through a, a long time where that was what was happening. And I think as trainers, we often work with a lot of people that are older than us, right? That's just sort of the nature of who needs our help. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like maybe in the last maybe five to 10 years, I like pay attention a lot more to what they're feeling, how they're moving, what they say about their lives and how their lives have affected or caused maybe where they feel like they're at. And it's just so obvious to me that if you let your health and your fitness and your wellness get away from you, for whatever reason, kids, family, job, health issues, whatever, if you let it get away from you, it's so much harder to get it back. Mm. So I'm, I'm pretty happy sort of saying, I kind of want to maintain what I can do. You know, I want to get a little bit better at certain things. 
I want to be able to, you know, if someone's like, let's go for a hike. I want to be able to go. If someone's like, let's go do a four day, 600 kilometer bike ride down the Pacific coast. I want to be able to go. So I, you know, I kind of got to maintain being pretty good at a bunch of stuff, but like not at the detriment of other things in my life, not to the detriment of my relationships, not to the detriment of the fact that I love food. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like just trying to find a way to, to keep all of those things in balance. So I don't have a super defined answer, but I'm kind of standing for the fact that there comes a point in your life where that's okay. I think that's important for people to hear. Goal setting has its place and can be quite powerful when you have a very defined purpose behind what you're striving for and you really get that and understand it. And it can be a very powerful experience to, to reach that goal. But sometimes it's more about intentions. Like these things that you're saying, it sounds like you, you have certain intentions around the way that you want to approach health, wellness, and then like your life overall, right? Because we can't forget that emotional, mental well-being and connection are all part of this picture as well. And we can't allow those things, like the second we allow those things to fall away because we're chasing a goal in the gym, I feel like our, uh, our priorities are a little bit off at that point, you know, like what are, what are we really striving for here? So um, I think that's a really important thing for, for people to hear. And I'm glad you said it. There is one thing I want to loop back around to that you said at the beginning of that answer. So I think it's really interesting. What do you think is the main value of hearing what other people think about you? Because we do often say like, you shouldn't care what other people think, be you. What is the value of potentially being open to like, what is the perspective that an outsider has of me? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, I don't want to speak for anybody, but I would say in my own experience that I'm, I'm pretty hard on myself. I don't particularly ask for help easily. I don't particularly accept compliments very well. Like I do that thing where someone gives me a compliment. I say something back that's nice about them. And I, I think that's really sort of interesting if we unpack it a little bit. Again, when we talk about um, sort of being a little bit more holistic and intuitive, when we give ourselves permission to kind of do what feels right, when we're, when we're keeping a standard, but we're not making it such an exacting standard that it's making us miserable. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about, you know, people telling you how they feel about you or sort of hearing through the grapevine, as long as, not, as, long as it's not gossipy stuff. I think what's really interesting about it is, is if I keep hearing that like, oh my God, Logan's so great. They're such a badass and they train all the time. I think it just kind of helps me go like, hey, well, I didn't do seven workouts last week, but I did four and I, you know, yeah, I can press a 24 kilogram kettlebell over my head with both arms. Like I'm, I'm actually doing okay. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, I feel like a, a, as trainers, we kind of have this idea that if we can't do it, we can't teach it. And I, and I, fully endorse that. But at the same time, what I'm helping you accomplish really has nothing to do with what I'm able to do. Um, so I think it's, I think it's just helpful to maybe like take it with a grain of salt, right? Like if someone insults you, take it with a grain of salt. If they compliment you, take it with a grain of salt. But if you, if you're getting a lot of outside feedback that you're doing a great job and you're making a great impact and you're, you know, you're really helping and you're of value, then I, I think you've got to be able to accept that and sort of fold it into how you feel about yourself that we are in an industry after all, where we are trying to help people. So if we get some feedback that that's what's happening, whether it's that we're aspirational, inspirational, knowledgeable, whatever, um, I think it's okay to, to take that and, and sort of use it to go, okay, I, I did a good job today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe we're not so good at doing that. So, you know, grain of salt, but I think there's some value in that for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. Because we get used to the status quo, right? Of, well, it's normal for me to work out five days a week, for example, and eat this certain way. And so we just assume that that's normal. And then we don't think of it as actually like, I've got some pretty, pretty solid habits here that I'm going to have for life. And, and that has a lot of value. Okay, Logan, I want to talk about a couple of just a couple of more technical things, because when you instructed on the PPSC course that I was in, I was very impressed by your technical knowledge about training and movement. And I just want to touch on a couple of my favorite topics um, that you covered in that course. The first that I loved, can you tell us about why the loss of your pillar which for the listeners who may not have heard that term, the pillar is your hips, your spine, and your shoulders being in line and having that solid pillar, good alignment. Why is the, does a loss of the pillar lead to a decrease in global strength? I think the, the analogy that I like to use, I, I mentioned in the course and, and I'll share it again, just because I think it really helps. I use this when I'm teaching my clients because it's super visual. If we think about a pop can, it's this cylinder that as long as we haven't cracked the top open yet, it's this, we've got a ton of pressure in it and it allows us to maintain that um, sort of cylindrical shape. That's sort of what we're trying to go for when we establish pillar position and when we create intra-abdominal pressure and we're breathing and bracing and all that kind of stuff. So sort of think about it, if, if you have, a, if you have a, a pop can that you stack a bunch of weight on top of, the pop can is fine, it can hold it all up. So if we, we go to do a squat with a barbell on our back, we kind of want to be in that same stacked strong position. And yet we see a lot of movement compensations. We see a lot of strategies that people use, which is essentially like if you crack the top of the pop can and all the pressure comes out, well, now that cylinder isn't very strong. Mm -hmm. So now you can dent it and you can crush the can and and all that kind of stuff. So the, the whole reason why we're trying to move towards this sort of pressurized pop can of a pillar when we train is that your brain's number one priority is to make sure you don't die. And communication in the spinal cord is a very important function of making sure that the body can survive, navigate, find food, move if, if there's danger, right? So the, the brain and the spinal cord are very important. The brain prioritizes them. And we've got sort of this skeletal structure on the outside of them, and that's great. But the spine has a fair bit of available movement because we have to be able to move in lots of different ways. The key is when we're training, we want to move in the right or optimal way. We don't want to move in ways that aren't conducive to that movement happening. So for example, if we rotate when we're bending over, we're more likely to to get sort of those little aches and pains in the back. If we're squatting, we want to be in a nice strong stack position. We don't want to be sort of bending the pop can and folding um, through the middle. So the thing that I learned that, that sort of really laid that in, I started doing um, like a, basically like an apprenticeship with a really awesome muscle testing guy. And we went out onto the gym floor and we tested like everything, every machine, every movement. And we were sort of looking at, you know, we want the, we want the strength output to be as strong as possible. And if we run up against a machine or a grip or a sort of postural issue or a technique error, that isn't the safest position for the brain to be in, well, then we get this reduction in strength output. And so the way that I sort of describe it is your, your body is constantly sending messages to your brain. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. Wait, it's not okay. 
And as soon as we get that weight, it's not okay message, the brain makes a reactionary decision to try to limit further harm. Mm -hmm. So if we come back to our, our squat and we look at it, when we, st when we stand at the top and we create um, the posture that we're gonna squat in, we wanna have hips stacked under shoulders and core braced and breathe, right? One of the reasons why people wear a belt is they kind of get that proprioceptive awareness of where to breathe into. So everything's good at the top, the brain's happy, but then the first thing we do when we move is we push the tailbone back and we arch the low back and we sort of create that extra tension in the, in the low back muscles. The brain instantly goes like, that's not good. And now we have less force production. The central nervous system literally down-regulates the amount of strength that is available. And the reason why is because if you're not as strong, well, maybe you won't move this really heavy thing that could hurt me, right? So it's very much a survival reflex. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to be able to train safely and build strength over time and, and minimize tissue strain and postural issues, and you know, if we want to minimize the risks of, of training, then we want to do everything we can to keep sending messages to the brain that are basically everything's okay, keep going. So that's a big part of what movement cueing and, and postural cueing and, and even just picking an exercise that someone can do well, that's kind of a big part of what it's all about is like, let's just keep the brain happy and then we move as effectively as possible. Yeah, this is everyone's reminder that your alignment matters. Being very nitpicky about maintaining that pillar in every movement, it matters. It will affect your strength output. And I feel like the biggest takeaway there also is just the reminder that strength is neural. It requires a neural drive. When we're, when we're looking at movement, we have to think of the global movement of what's happening and how is it affecting our central nervous system. Another good example of this is when you talked about foam rolling, and keeping it at a four out of 10 on a pain scale, which I'm sure to a lot of people sounds quite low because we see people all the time on foam rollers, like crying in pain. It's like a 10 out of 10 on the pain scale. And they, they think that's you know normal or that's how they should be approaching it. So why is it important to keep it at more of like a four out of 10? I would say there's kind of two reasons. We look at the autonomic nervous system and we have both the sympathetic response and the parasympathetic response. So we've got fight or flight and we've got rest and digest. And just in general, human beings spend a whole lot of time on the fight or flight side of the equation. And we were never designed to do that. We were supposed to be eating berries and sleeping in the shade and, you know, building our mud huts. And then if a lion came along, we needed to be able to like run away or put up a fight. But then as soon as the threat had been navigated, then we were going to go back to eating berries and chilling in the, in the shade. Right. So, you know, we've got so many things that elicit a stress response, whether it's my alarm clock, the number of emails I have traffic, you know, my boss asks me to come to his office. We've got all kinds of things that stress us out. We're spending way too much time with those stress hormones, you know, racing through the body. A lot of times what we have to consider is that if we want to move better, if we want to train well, if we want to have positive adaptation as the result of our workout, we actually have to like calm down for a minute and then create the opportunity for, for new motor learning. So a big part mm -hmm. of what happens when people have pain is they're compensating, they're guarding, they're protecting, um, but that's often part of what's causing their discomfort. It's causing their pain. So if we have to start to get them to move in different ways, we actually need them to like down-regulate, reduce some tone, relax on the stress side of things, 
And then as we teach in the, in the PPSC with the six phase dynamic warmup, you got to calm down first, then you've got to introduce some new movement and then you want to build back up from there. Cause as we know, a workout is stress. Yeah. We are fighting or running kind of one or the other. Right. So since a workout is inherently sympathetic in nature, we have to take that moment to get parasympathetic before we can make some changes. So again, with, with sort of the brain wanting to survive, a four out of 10 is fine. We're sending the brain messages that's like, everything's okay, FYI, there's like a little bit of tension here. If, you know, if you could like breathe, if you could just like relax that a little bit, that'd be awesome. A four out of 10 allows us to do that, especially if we incorporate breathing as part of our foam rolling. We start going up too much higher than that, the six, the seven, the sort of, you see elbows dug into glutes and, and you know, the face and all that kind of stuff. If we start going too much higher, we're automatically sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And so the body's response, if you feel yourself foam rolling, and then all of a sudden you tighten up because it's uncomfortable. That's the opposite response of what we're trying to accomplish. So it's actually kind of really important to understand that like four out of 10 is kind of ideal for what we're trying to accomplish. More pain is not better. And also that, you know, you're going to foam roll for a minute or two. Your pain is not going to go away. You're going to have a, a better response in the body. But it's like, you know, if you do a minute or two every day for a bunch of days in a row, it gets better. you're not foam rolling to try to get rid of pain right now. So I think if we look at it from the perspective of, again, that global message, that global experience, um, and if we're just maybe a little bit more patient, because that's what rest and digest is all about, um, then we'll actually sort of get that, that over time, we'll get that drastically noticeable improvement. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And it's remembering that when it comes to when it comes to soft tissue work, it's often more about frequency, keeping keeping the right stimulus than it is about inundating the tissues, because as you said, it just has sort of the opposite effect as what you want. Um, And motor learning happens when you're in a relaxed and parasympathetic state, it doesn't happen when you're all riled up and tense. So I think those are I think those are great points. Okay, the last sort of uh, thing that I want to touch on in this sort of like technical arena is this I find very interesting and I loved that you that you touched on this in the course as well. Sometimes we have clients that are hypermobile or at least they've got a lot of mobility. Like they're sitting there in their squat and they're like ass to grass, like flopping all over the place, but they say, oh my hamstrings just feel so tight or my glutes just feel so tight. I need to stretch. And in your head as a trainer, you're going like, based on the range of motion I'm seeing you in, like, I don't think you're actually that tight. So what is going on there and why can they experience being tight? Like what is actually happening there? Yeah. So one of the things I say a lot is, is tight is a sensation. It's not necessarily reality. I had a client who was a circus performer and was into aerial stuff and contortionism and whatever. So, I mean, moved through ranges of motion that were honestly terrifying to witness, (laughs) but she had a lot of physical discomfort. And the way she was explaining it was, I feel like I'm, I feel tight. I feel like my muscles are tight. I feel like I have these knots in my muscles. Like she would have discomfort on like just gently palpating various Mm -hmm. areas. And yet, you know, the sort of standard recommendation was like, oh, stretch it out. It didn't help, obviously, in her case, the kind of stuff that she could do was so far beyond what a normal fitness, like a, like, go ahead and stretch your quad. And she's used to pulling her foot all the way over the top of her head. 
So I kind of I kind of observed all of that over a couple of years. And yet what was the most obvious thing to me was she wasn't actually strong in important positions, right? So mm -hmm. if we talk about a plank or if we talk about hip extension or if we talk about like a side plank, um, sure, she could get into those positions, but she wasn't strong in them. She couldn't do things in those positions. Like if you're in a, if you're in a side plank and you can't also do a dumbbell press while you're in that position, that's not super awesome, at least not for my athletically minded brain. So I think what's important to understand is, you know, we're, we're having a better understanding of movement in the body. It's not just opposing muscle pairs. There's tendons, there's ligaments, there's fascia. We've got, we've got receptors in all of the different tissues we have from fibrous joint capsule all the way through to sort of the belly of, of the muscle. And again, all of those tissues are sending the brain messages, everything's okay. Or in the case of hypermobile or, or sort of posturally weak or, or people that have sort of laxity in certain areas, the message that's being sent is this is not safe. So then we're not going to get strength output on top of those positions, right? So the, the idea is to sort of look at, you know, we want stacking, we want posture, we want a strong central nervous system output, we want, you know, the body to, to work together in these synergistic reciprocal ways. And if we have too much of one thing, in this case, mobility, then we're going to have a hard time accessing the opposite thing, which is stability. And it's the balance between those two that's actually going to allow our brain to go, everything is fine. I don't need to dial up a bunch of sensation as a warning, right? So, you know, for hypermobile people, do they need to stretch? No, but they still really benefit from soft tissue work like foam rolling because that's helping us desensitize a little bit. And part of why we teach positional mastery in foam rolling, like the position your body's in when you foam roll is important. If you're foam rolling your quads with a huge arch in your back, the message your brain is getting is there's a huge arch in your back. That's louder than the, hey, relax that we're doing on the quad. So positional mastery is really important. We don't necessarily need to stretch hypermobile clients. If anything, we need to help them get better at finding those strong positions and then starting to be able to do things from there. So outside of performers, who really have to be able to sort of put their foot behind their head for the sake of how they make a living. Um, I think we have to look at, at extreme mobility or even sort of diagnosed laxity and stuff like that. We have, we have to look at it as like, there's a, there's a big signal being sent to the brain. That's a lack of safety. And we sort of want to move towards the stability that they need in order to be more comfortable. Yeah. And I think it's an important education piece with those people on, on explaining actually like stretching is not going to get you what you are seeking. Soft tissue work and some stability work will get you what you're seeking. So I think that's, that's an important education piece for the clients as well. Well, and just to kind of help, because I think a lot of that population comes from dance, yoga, gymnastics, kind of more body sort of focused modalities. Yeah. It, you don't have to deadlift 200 pounds to get out of pain either. Like, yeah, we want you to be strong, but there are ways to accomplish that that don't necessarily involve bodybuilding um, because that's sometimes what they get prescribed and they just mm -hmm. don't want to do it. It's not their preference. We can, we can train body weight movements with more of a come to the center, brace up, resist against movement kind of, of format. And that can be hugely valuable. It doesn't have to be, you got to lift heavy weights. So, you know, I, yeah. I think it's important to understand where people are coming from and meet them where they're at, but then just sort of give them what they need. 
in a way that's that's palatable that means they'll keep showing up right and throwing a bunch of bicep curls at someone who's who's hypermobile and has shoulder pain just isn't likely to mean they're going to come back a bunch of times willingly that's that classic mistake where trainers often impose the way they like to train and what they like to do and what their values are on clients without realizing there are many ways of looking at things. There are many ways of accomplishing what would be pain-free movement and longevity. So yeah, I think we have to be very careful about the approach uh, that we're taking. And if we are imposing our own views on other people when it might not be necessary. For sure. Easy to do. Yeah. Just takes a little bit of self-reflection, remembering you know who we're serving in a session versus our own workout, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Logan, I want to switch gears a little bit again, and I want to chat about gender. I'm curious, first of all, at what point did you kind of realize that you don't identify as male or female and that you prefer to use the pronouns they and them? And was that like a challenging decision to come to or a challenging realization to have? Like, what was the experience of that? Yeah, cool. Um, Yeah, so just for people to kind of have a frame of reference, I identify as non-binary, my pronouns are they, them. One of the things that I think kind of feeds into that conversation is I was a female athlete for a long time. I went as far as being a pro. So I think what I look at is it took me a really long time to figure out that I felt differently. And I think a little bit of that was self-preserving. How was I supposed to balance out feeling different and playing in a very binary sport existing in a very binary industry even. So I think I did a lot of avoidance and not really being aware and just putting my head down and training harder and playing harder and sort of just ignoring anything that didn't feel super comfortable. So I came to the realization really late. I even had my first girlfriend late and I I didn't change my pronouns until, well, a couple of years ago, to be honest. But I took all these little baby steps and, and I can go back and say, I always felt different. I just didn't know why Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with a lot of exposure to it. My family's amazing, but they're pretty traditional. And it wasn't that I wasn't accepted. We just didn't know these things existed. So I think for me, it was a lot of uh, one, a lack of exposure and and two kind of a self-preservation strategy. And then inevitably you, you meet people, you have experiences, you start learning things. It was a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest. I'm thankful I didn't really start to pay attention and notice till I got older and I had mm. some tools uh, to maybe self-regulate a little bit. Mm. Um, but it kind of just came down to, I still feel like I'm evolving. I don't feel like I've landed anywhere in particular, but it's just, it's being willing to notice when I'm uncomfortable in certain scenarios and and being willing to acknowledge that the spaces I'm in don't necessarily automatically accommodate me. Um, I don't, I'm not the type of person to put up a fuss, but I I deal with a certain amount of discomfort and I I try to just honor that instead of burying it because I did that for a very long time. So, you know, yeah, it was uncomfortable. I would say I made it more uncomfortable for myself than, than anybody when I, when I finally started asking for people to you know, use different pronouns. I got met with a lot of support and a lot of, Hey, I I'm going to try, I'm going to screw it up, but I'll do my best. And, um, I would say we're still in that process in all honesty, as I meet more and more people, as my, as my sort of realm expands a little bit, I say, I feel like I had a little bit of an atypical late run into that, but also, you know, kind of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier, there's no one way to get there. There's no one particular path you're supposed to take. So I'm yeah. still in the, in the process of learning about and, and navigating my own. And it's been 
it's been interesting. Maybe that's one of the things that kind of helped me back off a little bit on the intensity that I, that I perceived fitness with. I don't have the need to bury what I'm dealing with behind all of that. I can, I can hold space for trying to figure that out at this point. That's a very interesting reflection. Also having the sport element to things where you're in a sport that was clearly binary, that's a whole nother layer because I feel like sport in general does not acknowledge the diversity of sexuality and gender at all. It's a, it's a completely binary industry. And I, I think that's something that we need to, to realize and acknowledge because there are also so many people that struggle to acknowledge their sexuality because they are in sport and they don't see the representation and it's not okay in that area. And, you know, the locker room culture and yada, 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 all this stuff. But I think it's definitely an interesting thing to reflect on and realize that there is a lot, a lot of room for growth in that industry and area. There's no, like you said, there's no, there's no normal path of self-discovery, whatever it is that, that you're discovering for yourself. But it's very fascinating that you feel like it was easier to work through being older and having more tools in your toolbox. That's interesting. It's sort of, I guess, maybe, maybe a blessing in disguise because we know that a lot of young people like really struggle um, with their mental health when it comes to, to the self-discovery process. So that's a very interesting reflection. Yeah. I mean, I, I look back on, I, f- I find this to be like interesting in general, one, because I'm a part of it, but two, also because everybody's story is so different. Mm-hmm. I think back to being in high school and I was shy I struggled with my, how I wanted to represent myself. I kind of went back and forth between like tight jeans and white eyeliner and being a tomboy. And I feel like athletics gave me a place to sort of represent myself as closer to how I felt like being an athlete became Mm -hmm. an identity for me. Whereas maybe if I hadn't been able to put shorts and cleats on and go outside and be dirty, I think I might've had a harder time. I trained with um, a lot of boys teams. Cause my coach said, Hey, you should play with people that are bigger and faster than you. Cause it'll make you better. So I, I think I actually had a, I wouldn't say I was in the locker room with them. Cause that's not fair, but I, I was just a part of that culture in a way that maybe a most female athletes wouldn't have been. And I, I sort of, I sort of bounced back and forth between sort of being a quiet, shy person and then getting on the field and having some confidence and being loud and, and, you know, screaming at my defenders and whatever. So I I think that actually really helped me. I didn't, I didn't have to carve out a place for myself on the gender spectrum because I could, I could leave class and go play a sport. And that felt like something that was sort of more comfortable. And I also think that I, I think that I'm lucky that I was female versus male. Cause I think it would have been a lot harder to Mm. be a, boy and have those questions I think it was a little bit more forgiving um, to be a girl and have some variance I think in general my female teammates probably like when I came out they were all like uh wait you weren't before so I think I I think I just was lucky in that sense too and and I it like you say blessing in disguise I, I would really like for everyone to have the ability to just explore who they are but I think being a little bit sheltered kind of served me well and then I didn't have to deal with the stuff that I was questioning and uncomfortable about until I had a little bit of a better understanding about where I had value, right? I was already successful Mm -hmm. in my career. I'd already made some 
pretty big leaps in terms of the work that I got to do before I kind of asked for this. I didn't have to, you know, put they, them on my resume. I'd had my job for seven years by the time I asked for that. So lucky in that sense. And also, you know, hoping that things change for people that figure it out sooner and then have to navigate growing up with that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Why do you think it's easier having identified as a female in the past than if you had identified as a male in the past? What are the differences that of like expectation that we sort of place on females versus males? I think if I, if I sort of had to go back and imagine it, do it, imagine doing it the other way around, it was okay to be a girl who didn't have a boyfriend. Cause I was playing a lot of sports and I was really busy and I was playing the drums and I, you know, and I was trying to get a scholarship and, you know, it was okay to be single and busy. And I, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like if you were a boy and you weren't, dating somebody, flirting, having sex, drinking. Like, I feel like you'd have been treated Mm. worse. Maybe it's not, it's not fair, but that's kind of my perception. I feel like I got away with some stuff because I was kind of invisible. When I was on the field, everyone sort of saw me through this sports lens. And anytime you're, anytime you're good, you have value, right? So I wasn't like super close with the people that I went to school with. I wasn't hanging out at people's houses and whatever, but on the field, I had value. I kept the ball out of the net and we got to win. So I I think a little bit of that, yeah, that sort of invisibility, I think was maybe easier in sort of a female role. Whereas my perception of my male teammates was they gave each other shit all the time and they were constantly ragging on each other. And like the smallest guy on the team was getting ragged on for being small. And he was, Mm -hmm. you know, in the gym trying to, you know, pump iron and whatever. So like, it just, to me, it was, there was sort of a more aggressive standard that you had to be a part of as, as a male. And I think that's a little bit reflected in the culture at large, right? We're sort of having to unlearn those roles. And while, while females for sure have to fight their own fight in different ways, I guess I feel safer in a less aggressive, less physically dominant gender than maybe what my perception is on, on the male side of things. Yeah. I think they're really important differences to, to think about because yeah, the experience of being a male and a female are very different. So yeah, I think those are, that's really interesting. Do you, do you feel like as you were growing up and younger, partly because of maybe this underlying subconscious, like identity struggle that you were having that you held back from really close social relationships? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> to the point where like, I remember crafting a crush so that I had something to talk about. <laughs> I remember going yeah. through the yearbook and going, okay, I don't want to pick someone who's with somebody. I don't want to pick someone who like might actually ask me out. I want to pick someone awkward enough that they'll leave me alone. And I was like, this guy. And I remember <laughs> then going to school and telling stories about the fact that I'd been playing music and thinking about him. Like it was all a giant story, but it, it allowed me a little bit more sort of time without having to, um, you know, be, be checking off the boxes that everybody else seemed in a hurry to check off. Um, so yeah, I, I kept myself at a little bit of a distance. I liked being busy because Monday I had this, Tuesday I had this, but oh, sorry, I can't come. It's not like I was getting invited, but it was like I was giving myself that that out without even um, sort of being invited along. And I, you know, I, I think back to some of those things like school dances and prom and whatever. And those, those times were when I was the most uncomfortable because I couldn't hide as well. Yeah, I think I think being into a sport and being busy and training every day and getting out onto the field and playing for five teams at once, like I think that was just safer than dealing with questions that I had for myself, dealing with questions from other people. I certainly didn't want to get 
drawn out or called out for being different. I just tried to blend a lot. And I had to get to a, a time and a space in my life where one, I was not around my family and all the people that I'd grown up with because they all had expectations of me and I needed to get away from that. Um, and then I think, I think I also just needed to be of value in a way that wasn't so selfish. Like I was a great athlete, but that was a fairly selfish pursuit. And that didn't really feel rewarding. I, I was proud of myself. I had things that I wanted to do, but I wasn't, I look now at my training career and I look at how important it is for me to, to give back and make a difference in people's lives. I think I needed that to then say, okay, I'm a really good person. I do important, helpful things. Maybe now I can start to figure out how I feel um, because I sort of, you know, I had relationships. I was helping people. I had some stability and security in my, in my identity as a trainer, as a, as a fitness professional. And then that sort of allowed me to go, okay, I'm, I'm doing a really good job on all of those things. Now let me go figure out what this, this means on the outside. So mm -hmm. I, I think that for me was kind of the, the key to being able to explore a little bit more. That makes total sense. Overall, what do you feel like are some of the most important things for people to understand about gender? Just that it's a spectrum. I think we do ourselves a really big disservice on almost any topic by saying this or this. Almost anything we fight about politically, religiously, gender-wise, whatever, it's because we're, we're only giving people two options. And we put those two things as diametrically opposed Right? right. So male is opposite to female. Republican is opposite to Democrat. Right. And I think I think we do a really big disservice to ourselves to approach anything that way. So if gender is a spectrum, I think it's almost equally as damaging for people that identify on one side of the other. Because if I'm a man, then there's all these things that have to come along with that. I'm not supposed to like poetry. I'm not supposed to like needlecraft. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. But <laughs> But it's, it's detrimental because anybody could enjoy anything if they were given the opportunity to experience it without the sort of um, preconceived notions of, of what it's about, right? So mm -hmm. gender is a spectrum, how you feel, how you dress, how you show up in the world, the activities that you're interested in, who you're attracted to, all of those things. There's almost unlimited options to explore. And I, I, think, I think more people should be able to explore more things. I'm not saying that everybody's gender fluid. Some people are very firmly what they are, but you can be a man and enjoy art. You can be a female and love UFC, right? Like I think we would just, I think we would create a lot more comfort for everybody if we just followed our curiosity and we're generally, a, you know, generally supportive. As long as you're not hurting somebody, what's the harm? in trying something different and, you know, finding joy in, in things that you, that you maybe wouldn't have assumed that you like makes your life more interesting. So, um, you know, where we're dealing with things like, sure, Logan, that's all well and good. But when I go to the gym, there's a men's change room and there's a women's change room. What do I do? I get it. It's tough. It's cool. If there's a, like a gender neutral option. Um, yeah. it's cool. If you sort of are in a community or in a facility that has already decided how they're going to handle that whether they put you know labels on the doors or whether they say hey there's a change room here and there's a change room there you're welcome to use whichever one you want like there are ways to navigate this that aren't so like scary for people and and if we move in that direction I think it'll I think it'll really help yeah great point that 
the problems of having these two binary things, it really does translate to a lot of other things in life, doesn't it? And it's, it's only a problem when we start to create these boxes of if you are this, then this list of things must be true. And it's up to us to try to fit into it. Like humans are not that simple. Humans are incredibly complex. That's what's so awesome about being human. But the way that our society defines things, the way that culturally we just learn to define things, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for all of that color to, to be there. I think that's a fantastic place to leave people. If people are interested in learning more about you or potentially getting in touch with you, how can they go about finding you? I think probably what makes the most sense just based on what we've been talking about is um, I post a fair bit on Instagram with my um, sort of PPSC stuff. So it's logan.3dfit. That's kind of where I'm most active. I have another account, but I basically only post things about my cat. Uh, so it's probably <laughs> the easiest one. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I tend to put everything else that I'm doing on there. So podcasts and articles and courses I'm teaching and whatever, they all tend to, to show up there. Um, I actually don't have a ton of people to follow. So I answer DMs and I'm happy to, you know, accept videos and give my coaching feedback and, and you know, point out any resources I can. So until that gets totally unmanageable, I think that's the easiest. That's awesome. And that is a great offer, everyone. Definitely take them up on that because uh, that's very valuable. Okay, Logan, thank you so much uh, for chatting. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate all the thoughts that you've shared and also your openness with sharing about your experience. I, I think it's it's been very valuable. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to How Do You Feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, Please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.